Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Tequilili. Tequilili. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner. Uh, and no, I'm sorry. That that thing by Anna just freaked me out. So I'm gonna give me a second. Hold on. All right. Are you gonna have a nervous breakdown? There we go. <laughs> Be unable to function. <laughs> That's true. I find now I identify the grad student who has broken down. Okay. Hi. I mean, grad students have breakdowns all the time. Exactly. This I mean, is why like, I, I don't know that. why he thinks it was it was right. it, it was the tequilili that did it. Was it really? Is, yeah. Exactly. That's a good point. Um, hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I'm only into early bootleg copies of the Necronomicon before it went corporate. You probably haven't heard of them. I will speak in words now, Dan. We have some really cool stuff coming up. Battlestar Galactica version one. We are going to attempt to do Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which will Mm -hmm. be our first time doing a TV series, not episode by episode. We're also going to do Altered Carbon, the book, which happens to be my absolute favorite mashup genre, which is detective noir and sci-fi. Exactly. And we're also doing Starship Troopers. We are taking... (laughs) Yes. And we are taking suggestions. We have a... A thing that's called a Discord now. It's like Usenet, Dan. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. That is a it's term a chat I've heard forum. All right. It's a chat forum. Okay. And that's thinking about it that way really helped me get over my fear of using it. So I've been dipping in out of that Discord chat. There are places in there, there are channels in that chat for you to suggest things and to discuss various episodes, give us feedback, et cetera, et cetera. Or, Dan, where can they go on the web to find out more? I'm glad you asked, Anna. They can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash space the nation. We have triple figures in terms of patrons, and we are very proud of that fact. And this will lead to, among other things, a patron-only podcast coming in the future. Where you can weigh in on on the Discord, mm-hmm. or we are also doing sort of a poll. You can go to, if you're a fan, go to the Patreon and you'll figure it out. Yeah. This episode is a little different from our usual episodes, not just because I opened it speaking a formless, nameless, inhuman language, but it's part of our Canon Fodder series, in which we tackle a signature piece of science fiction or genre work and mine it for what it has to say about IR and try to figure out if it should still be Canon or if it's just fodder. (laughs) Today, we're going to be talking about H.P. Lovecraft. At the Mountains of Madness. It is his longest work, Hmm. among other things. And Dan, I I know you have a little bit of the story behind the story. I do. You are going to be providing more of this, I believe. But the the thing that I learned in reading this was that Lovecraft was apparently obsessed with Antarctica. He is not the only one to feel that way in this genre of sci-fi. And actually, the thing reading it, I was struck by that. Uh, If you read Watchmen, of course, Antarctica plays an important role in the denouement of uh, that classic comic book. And also, apparently, Antarctica is really popular in V movies. By that, I mean both Alien V Predator and Godzilla V Kong. So uh, it it plays a a sort of virtual role of of sort of the, the last frontier, as it were, on Earth. And the thing that actually I think is legitimately amazing to me as I was reading this was the the knowledge that when he was writing this there were parts of this planet that had not yet been mapped out. And so that was why it was plausible in some ways that what seems fantastical reading it in the 21st century, I think, seemed probably a little less fantastical at the time that Lovecraft actually published this. Yeah, I mean, it was an alien planet, Mm -hmm. basically. That's one of the reasons why this is science fiction in a way. Is it because it takes place in an alien milieu? Exactly. I will say he gets a lot of the science right. Mm -hmm. Among other things, he talks about plate tectonics, which was just a theory at the time. So he was like read up on that stuff. And there's just a lot of detail (laughs) about science and about scientific equipment and about what scientists would do on an expedition. And Dan, I did have flashbacks to Three Body Problem when I was reading that. I have to admit, so this is this precludes something we're going to be talking about a little later. This is the first time I read this, and I was legit surprised at how much science there was in this. You know, Lovecraft, I know by reputation, I think of him as a horror writer exclusively. This was legitimately sci-fi. Yeah, it is legitimately sci-fi. I mean, he's, he's incredibly influential, and I will talk more about that in yeah. a second. Why did you think we should do this book, Dan? <laughs> You know, because 
academics plus Antarctica equals crazy delicious as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, the, uh, as an academic who has actually been to Antarctica, I would add. I got to go to Antarctica. So, so uh, humble brag I, much. Yes, fair enough. But I did go to Antarctica as part of a, a, a sort of alumni thing for my university. I was one of the faculty experts who had to talk about it. So uh, the key thing was free trip to Antarctica. However, that uh, did not go terribly well for me in the long term. I have paid a price for that trip ever since because I left Boston during the snowpocalypse of 2015. And during the two weeks I was gone, it snowed far more in Boston than it did where I was in Antarctica. And my wife has never let me forget that fact. I guess it's the wife part that's bad, right? Like that, because I was going to say you dodged a bullet. But, no, no, no. I abandoned. But your wife shoots you with that <laughs> yes. bullet every time. I was saying what okay. you think of as dodged right. a bullet, my wife thinks of as abandoned my right. family. So, yes. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so I'll get into sort of why we chose this as cannon fodder. Yeah. The cannon argument is pretty easy. He is one of the most influential horror writers ever. He may be one of the most influential writers of any genre in the 20th century. He is the author of the Cthulhu Mythos, which uh, you have probably come across if you are listening to this podcast in some way. There are books and movies and comic books and video games and uh, tabletop games and all sorts of things that are based on a Lovecraftian universe, including a little show called Lovecraft Country. Mm-hmm. He's been cited by a bunch of pretty diverse range of authors as uh, influential or inspirational. Stephen King, Michael Chabon, Joyce Carol Oates, and China Mieville, who wrote the introduction to the edition that I read. A really, really good introduction, actually. And it is about an expedition to Antarctica, and I discovered that there are scientists who cite it <laughs> in their articles wow. or who reference it in their articles. I mean, not obviously with seriousness, but clearly academics who've gone to Antarctica make up a percentage of the fandom of this <laughs> of this book. <laughs> he's big in it. He's huge in Antarctica. There's just there's he's no huge other way in Antarctica. Yes, exactly. I actually did get a little tickled by he. You know, he mentions McMurdo Station, right? right? Like it's that, it, it's real. It's all real. Yes. Now, the fodder argument is clear. <laughs> Anna, can I say this? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. So there's just no way to get around this. Lovecraft was super racist, super anti-Semitic. It's not subtle. It's a little subtle in this book, but it's, generally speaking, much, 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 very clear and generally legitimately... It's, you can't argue it. Yeah, like, it, yeah. he. In his writings to other people, in his also sort of pseudo-academic writings, I shouldn't call them pseudo-academic writings, like he wrote articles, Mm -hmm. he says just clear out-and-out racist shit. Like, (laughs) he says at one point about Hitler, I know he's a clown, but God, I like the boy. So that's just a sample. He also wrote a poem entitled, I will not say the full name of this poem, but it's entitled on the creation of inwards, describing how the gods created black people to fill the gap between men and beasts. And this is, of course, somewhat important for our discussion later on. And if we're going to catalog all of the other kind of racist things uh, about H.P. Lovecraft, he was a huge fan of Oswald Spengler, who wrote The Decline of the West, which in and of itself is not a racist book. Mm Mm-hmm. However, it was very influential on the thinking Mm -hmm. of Hitler, as well as, and I think our listeners in particular will be interested to learn this, uh, Julius Evola, who is in turn influential to the philosophy of Steve Bannon. Who, let's face it, could very well have said something along the lines of, I love the boy, you know, to some extent. Let's, let's be clear. <laughs> He's a that. clown, but I love the exactly, boy. Exactly, yeah. Uh, which also could have been Donald Trump's, you know, campaign slogan. Right. Yeah. yeah. So this is kind of an open and shut case as far as the racism goes. Mm-hmm. But the question, I think, for us mm-hmm. and the thing to discuss is this particular piece of work. Right. It is widely acknowledged as one of his best. It's his longest. It's the closest there is to a novel. If we were going to include other works, there are other works that are more explicitly racist. Which um, we're not going to include. Like, you know, just no, but if you are curious, yes. the horror at Red Hook is pretty gross. Okay. <laughs> it is, it's actually it's about the area of Red Hook where 
there are lots of immigrants and um yeah so immigrants aliens you might understand why he made that connection but yeah yeah i would like to know what you thought you might be getting into dan when i told you i wanted to so I'm not going to lie. As I said, I, I've been vaguely familiar with Lovecraft. I think I'm pretty sure I read one or two of his short stories at some point when I was in college. I recall Cthulhu, and I remember just sort of thinking. For me, I guess the way I always thought about it was is that there was a there's a sort of spectrum between sci-fi and horror, and I kind of thought of Philip K. Dick as the gateway between sci-fi to Lovecraft, and. You know, and or I guess maybe William S. Bur- William O. Burroughs. I don't know. But like the point is, is that Lovecraft. How do I put this? I, I always thought of Lovecraft as that drug that I did not want to take. <laughs> I'm sure it would K-holes? take me places. Like you pretty like it's going to put you in a K-hole. Yeah. That's, that's what you were thinking. Basically, yes. Yes. Like it was just like, I, you know, maybe this is like the firstborn risk averse kind of guy in me but like i was like i just wasn't sure what i want to deal with him and so as a result i as i said before i was legit surprised by this book in some ways in that while i knew it was obviously going to be horror frankly there was somewhat less horror than i was expect or we'll talk about this later as well but like it was honestly more scientific than i was expecting and so that was kind of a pleasant surprise i guess yeah well lovecraft is actually one of the first horror writers i remember reading Hmm. period and i just gobbled it up I was a strange little kid. Let's, let's just <laughs> posit that I was a strange little kid. And I I just remember loving it. I obviously was not seeing the racism. I was probably in grade school or junior high. Oh, my God. And wow. I think, um, no, I'll say junior high. Mm-hmm. I was precocious, but maybe not that precocious. Mm-hmm. And it was so influential to me. It really shaped my idea of what, like, good genre fiction good horror good science fiction like looked like sounded like and even more importantly felt like yes that because his writing as we will get into (laughs) has some flaws but what he is the master of is creating a sense of dread Mm -hmm. and that is what i love about horror and science fiction i've never been a gore and guts girl what I've always That's a good lo- t-shirt to a- wear, by the way. But keep yeah, <laughs> I've never been a, a jump scare person. Yeah. Some people like jump scares. I hate jump scares. What I love about the kind of fiction that, that we talk about, especially horror, mm-hmm. which we will talk about some more, yeah. is that sense of dread and possibility that really good horror brings to mind. That sense of like, oh, that could happen, mm-hmm. you know? I, at this point, maybe after we talk about it some more, I can think about it, but I, at this point, couldn't tell you how he is able to do that with the kind of stiff writing that he does. It's a weird, it's a legitimately (laughs) weird mix. And I, I I am with, I have a sense of how he does it, but like, yeah, there were also elements of this that I was not expecting on the bad side as well, which is I was, there were plenty of pages where I'm reading this thinking, for the love of God, just show me, okay? You know, stop, stop this. I'm bored now, and like that's, that's what I meant about. There's some three body problem yeah. problems. Oh yeah, <laughs> with this story. Yes, you weren't lying about that. <laughs> but anyway, I was just so excited to talk about this. Um, I'm really glad I, I forced Dan to read it, although <laughs> I know he had a somewhat bewildered first reaction to it. It's a bewildering book. It's a strange, it's strange, you know, they called this genre weird fiction when he was writing it. I may or may not have texted Anna saying, Anna, what the fuck did you just make me read? (laughs) I I can neither (laughs) confirm nor deny that text. All right. Now that we've set the table. Yes. Would you please tell us the plot, Dan? I would be delighted to, Anna. So let us start with Act 1, Journey to Antarctica. Our narrator is a gentleman named William Dyer, who is a geology professor at Arkham's Miskatonic University, Go Miskos. (laughs) (laughs) They're probably the Cthulhus. Yes, that's a good point. (laughs) The Miskatonic Cthulhus, Miskatonic Cthulhus. That would, would, you know, (laughs) look, all I'm saying is their football team, you know, undefeated in the the Shogoth League. Okay. So anyway... uh, The book is written in some ways as an effort to warn others interested in following his team's prior exploration to Antarctica. He had participated in an expedition to Antarctica in 1930. 
his colleague, Lake, uh, once they get to Antarctica, leaves a sub-expedition and discovers a mountain range higher than the Himalayas in Antarctica. Further exploration and drilling uh, reveals the existence of fossils that are millions of years old and suggest prior cycles of life far earlier than common evolutionary biologists would have expected at the time, and for that matter now. Lake and his team excavate 14 prehistoric life forms, eight of which are uh, preserved perfectly and, and demonstrate incredible musculature, and described in his words as uncanny resemblance to certain creatures of primal myth, which is not how biologists talk. Uh, <laughs> are you having my the my linguist problem? Yes, with yes, the yes. A little here. bit, little bit. Sorry. Okay, but anyway, point is. They, you know, excavate them. The dogs are not happy about this. The sled dogs that they've brought in, not happy about that. Lake attempts some crude dissections and is relaying basic anatomical facts about these creatures over the wireless to Dyer, who is then broadcasting it to the base ship and then is being broadcast to the rest of the world. Uh, Lake then packs it in for the night, and that is the last we hear from Lake and his expedition. Dyer and a graduate student named Danforth fly to Lake's camp to investigate. Anna... Why doesn't anyone in any of these stories ever listen to the dogs? Dogs are smart about these things. Dogs know when there's bad shit going down. I don't understand why they never listen to the dogs. This is a horror trope and it always bugs me. And even in the context of the story, you'd think like, huh, the dogs keep reacting to this. (laughs) I'm a scientist. I look at cause and effect. (laughs) Like, perhaps there is a reason. Yeah. This section is the a section that kind of amuses me. I would say, actually, on this reread of the book, which might be my fourth or fifth time, by the way, mm-hmm. I found myself amused by a lot of the flaws more than anything else. <laughs> this will be probably something that comes up multiple times because I just didn't get angry. I just couldn't get angry. Right. Ah, uh, HP. <laughs> yeah, just you're, you with your telling and not showing. You. Always providing the number of dogs. You crows scamp you. <laughs> Yeah, like it's which you do in this section, you get the setup of just how much science you're going to get and mm-hmm. also just how much detail about equipment <laughs> and toing and froing. Actually, I will say that like lots of pl- trains, planes, and automobile stuff. Right. Like we went there and then 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 there. No, the mo- the modern equivalent I kept thinking, actually, I, I, I can't remember the, the author's name, but The Martian, the novel. Um, oh, yeah. And Andy Weir, is it? Or. Yes. Yeah, that's Andy right. Weir. Yeah, there's echoes of that in in the first part of this book, actually, or rather, echoes of Lovecraft in his book. I also will say that I did have the thought. Maybe one reason why I'm more forgiving of the telling and not showing in this particular context is that he does a really good job of creating the character of William Dyer. Hmm. Like the character of the narrator is very clear, mm-hmm. and. That's actually, I think, trickier to do than than most readers might think about. Right. When you're writing something in the first person, like how do you create that character? Yeah. I think I mean is that he would tell and not show. Yeah. Like the character of William Dyer is a teller, not a shower. Right. So, you know? Yeah, that's fair. And he's an academic. And, yeah. you know, it is... Un- Very. Yes, he's an extremely <laughs> a- academic. And it is... I will say the the first part of this in which, like, you know, he's describing his disagreements with Lake, that felt perfectly academic. And, yes, I recognize that. That's like the committee meeting from hell in Antarctica. All right. Let's go to part two. Part two, following Lake. So, uh, Dyer and ten others fly by aeroplane uh, to Lake's site, where they find a lot of disturbing shit. Most of Lake's team, including the dogs who warned everyone, are found dead, and some of them appear to have been crudely dissected with Lake's equipment. Uh, The only ones not found dead are a grad student named Gedney and one sled dog. Dyer presumes that Gedney must have gone insane and murdered everyone. Uh, He also presumes that Gedney must have been responsible for the six super weird star-shaped mounds under which these six mutilated creatures have been buried, decorated in the same way as the greenish soapstone artifacts that Lake had earlier excavated and described over the wireless. At this point, they start censoring what they relay back to their base ship, apparently because they're clearly freaked out. Nonetheless, burdened by scientific zeal, Dyer and Danforth fly a lightened plane to inspect the mountain range that Lake described. They discover a vast uh, abandoned stone city stretching more than 50 miles, filled with architecture beyond human comprehension. There's a lot of beyond human comprehension in this book. They land on top uh, on a plateau uh, next to one of the structures and then proceed to investigate. 
So, Anna, I know this is Lovecraft, and maybe asking for complete verisimilitude is a bit much, but all I kept thinking during this part was that these guys are supposed to be higher than Mount Everest when they land, and there is no oxygen. There is one brief sentence about how they might be short of breath, but come on! <laughs> I mean, come on! Don't go all arrival on me. Um... <laughs> This is where the science sort of starts to fall apart Mm -hmm. and where their behavior kind of matters a little bit more than the specifics. I think they they continue to behave like scientists or at least, you know, our conception of scientists, like their curiosity really propels them. And Mm -hmm. that's believable. I actually I did. That was one of my honestly, my favorite thing about this book. But keep going. Uh, yeah, that that is one of the things like the character of William Dyer, yeah. like you believe that he's doing this out of curiosity that he well, however terrified he is, mm-hmm. and he's terrified, yeah. he keeps telling us because he doesn't show us. Right. <laughs> he's going to continue. When they get to the alien city, though, you really have to like stop asking questions about logic. Yeah, I know. <laughs> about the in- even the interior logic uh, of the story, because we will get into the alien hieroglyphics. Mm-hmm. But just the whole thing. Like, I wish they'd said, just said they found writing. You know? <laughs> this is actually, oh, this is me having an arrival linguistic flashback. There, there is no way they could have translated all that hieroglyphics the way they translate them. Yeah. That's just not true. There you go. But it is a good story. So we will just proceed. That is fair. Oh, and I also will say this is when when we start to get the invocation of inhuman or unhuman to a degree that if you are playing a drinking game with this book, <laughs> <laughs> do not pick inhuman or unhuman or beyond human comprehension. Don't. Do not pick anything with the word human in it Don't. because that's his go-to. Yeah, or primal. <laughs> Don't do primal. You'll you'll get or cyclopean. Yeah, cyclopean. That's right. Yes, exactly. Which. I guess it meant something a little different for him because I was like, it's not one eyed, that's for sure. Like, <laughs> all right. Now I think I know what he, I think if he means just like um, lumpy, big. I'm not even, I, you know what? There big. are more important parts of this book. All right, all right. Okay, okay. Yes. So let us proceed to Act Three, which I have dubbed Dyer and Danforth Go to White Castle. <laughs> so as they proceed into the structure, Dyer describes at length what he and Danforth see in the dwellings, particularly the richness of the wall carvings or frescoes or whatever the hell you want to call them. There was apparently an extraterrestrial race uh, called the Elder Ones that arrived millions of years ago. They created Shogoths to be slaves that served them from the matter here on Earth. These elder things thrived on Earth until other species arrived from space, including beings from Cthulhu. They defeated the aliens from Cthulhu, but then faced a new invasion of the Migo, I think, uh, or Abominable Snowmen. This causes them to have to retreat from their control of the Southern Hemisphere back to their sort of base in Antarctica. They have also lost the technology for interstellar interstellar travel that allowed them to arrive here and must cope with the oncoming Ice Age hitting Antarctica. Also, according to uh, Dyer, the Shogoths acquire, quote, a dangerous degree of accidental intelligence, end quote. And this is the primary trigger for the decline of the Old One civilization. Anna, this part has a lot of telling rather than showing. And also, just so I'm completely clear, this is the part that is racist as fuck, yes? Yes. Okay. And here, I I thought I'd have to explain. (laughs) Because it is a little weird, because yeah. he's racist against Shogoths, right. which is, you know, an alien species. How can you be racist against something that, you know, can't even really categorize? But I'm about to make a joke okay. that I mean, actually, with earnestness, sincerity, and respect, which is Shogoth lives matter. <laughs> and I, that sounds funny, <laughs> and I admit it, but... What I mean by that is that racism isn't something that exists only like in particular races. Racism is just a form of bigotry, right? And Lovecraft is trying to normalize bigotry, you know? Like he's trying to set up a way of thinking about races in which some races are better than others and it's understandable why you might want to enslave one of them. Mm -hmm. And just the way he talks about them again, sort of once you see the parallel once you see that he's like sort of acting out this race drama (laughs) it 
the way he talks about the Shoggoths is really like, I, again, it seems silly, but it's almost offensive. Yeah. You know, like you say, like he, the, the, the quote you have here, a dangerous degree of accidental intelligence. I could know? not read that and not think, oh, crap, I know what he's doing. So, yes, that was that was a thing. Um, yeah. And it's one of these things that once you see it, you can't unsee it is the problem. That I, let me put it this way. I think it's legitimately possible to read this book and not detect a scintilla of racism oh, yeah. in it. And so, and there's a reason why it does fall into the canon part of the cannon fodder thing. So I, I'm not trying to say it's garbage, but the problem is, is that the moment you realize what that's supposed to be, you can't put it to one side. You know, you can't say, except for that, it becomes very hard because it's clearly partly at the core of the book. Yeah. He is a creating an instruction manual for how to think about racism. Right. And, and how to think about the decline coming- of civilization. And how to clean the decline of civilization and who to blame yeah. for the decline of civilization. Exactly. And it's very Bannon-like, yes. actually, too. Mm-hmm. I know I'm going to talk more about this specifically later, and I think we should probably move on with the plot. Okay, so. let us move to the final act, Tekalili. So as they descend further into this uh, alien city, they begin to smell gasoline as well as something much, much more foul. They discover the remainders of Lake's equipment as well as the remainders of Gedney and the dog who have been very crudely dissected. They arrive at the subterranean tunnel that in theory leads to the underground sea city, which was the sort of last residence of the old ones. There they encounter uh, six-foot-tall albino penguins waddling around they also find most of the remaining bodies that Lake had excavated, and all of the bodies they find are decapitated. Uh, they suspect that there is one or two remaining. They are about to proceed into the tunnel when they encounter another being, and they think this is one of the old ones that is actually still alive. But then they realize it is not one of the old ones. It is, in fact, a Shogoth, who is super disgusting and keeps making a sound called Tekalili, Tekalili. At this point, it would be safe to say that fear overcomes the scientific curiosity of Danforth and dire and they hightail it out of there with the Shogoth in hot pursuit. They get back to their plane and depart, but not before Danforth looks back and sees something that sends him to a Massachusetts insane asylum when they return to civilization. Anna, the ostensible point of this story, the entire reason, like ostensibly this is being written from the point of view of Dyer, is to prevent uh, the Starkweather Moore party from retracing Dyer's steps, because most of this has been broadcast back to civilization, and civilization seems super intrigued. I don't think it's going to have worked. What do you think? I'm trying to think of a time when science has said, don't do that, <laughs> and people have been like, okay, sure. Yeah, that sounds like a bad idea. Let's not. <laughs> No, don't do this thing. It's like it's like the scene in Inception where it's like, don't think of elephants. What are you thinking of? Elephants, yeah, you know? It, it, yeah. It, 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 don't do the thing that seems really cool and dangerous right. and provocative. And in some ways, Dyer should understand this, right? You would like, think, because, yes. But, you know, he's been scarred. Yeah. I think we can actually just kind of like get to the rest of our discussion here. Let's, let's um, do that. So, Anna, let, let, we, go to, <laughs> we go to the part of Cannon Fodder, which I do like, called, So What's the Problem? <laughs> So I picked this story because it's racist. (laughs) Racist against the Shogoths. And I've already kind of gone into like why this is important, but I don't think I explicitly said he is basically acting out Spangler's theories about civilization with the dose of racism that Evola and Hitler and Bannon add. And if you've been reading along with us, you know what that arc looks like, mm-hmm. or supposedly looks like, which is that you start civilized, well, start, you get into civilization, you become a highly evolved civilization, mm-hmm. and the hallmarks of that civilization are erudition, and uh, classicism, and simplicity, and elegance. And socialism, interestingly enough. And socialism, yeah. interestingly enough, yeah. yes. And it is, one of the problems of the book is how do they get this from but the rock carvings. Yeah. And how would you tell that certain rock carvings are Look, Dyer is a really good geologist, okay? And I am offended that you don't think he, he is a really He's a really good geologist. But they trace the story. The story that they trace is, a, is one of this civilization that is classical Greek yeah. in some way. And then it gets more and more decadent. And if you don't know that the word decadent is bad for Lovecraft... <laughs> This is going to be a really confusing book for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. For 
for those of our readers who think decadence is a good thing, um, I would understand if this book confuses you. Yeah. And I have to say, like, I think when I was a kid, I was kind of like, why is that? Because when I was a kid, like, decadent just meant, like, eating a lot of chocolates or something, right? Like, what I hadn't encountered, you know, the way that racists often talk about Mm -hmm. the decline of civilization, which is to call it decadent or degenerate. He doesn't use the word degenerate. Um, But he uses the word decadent, as Mieville points out, 21 times in this rather short novel. Very also not subtly. Like, it's a a thing. And he uses it in the the ways that Nazis use the word decadent. You sort of mentioned this, Dan, which is one argument that this is canon, not fodder, is that you kind of need a secret decoder ring to see the racism. Yeah. But. (laughs) But once you have that, and I'm sorry if we've ruined this now for everyone who has read this and never, never noticed the racism. But yeah, once you see it, it can't go away. There's just no other way to put it. And it, it. Kind of obviously ruins yeah. the story. Well, th- because the horror that Lovecraft tries to conjure is based on a horror of a lower race, right? So, it's based on finding another race horrific. Yeah, and and this was the part that I can't. So, like, even let me put it this way: I agree with you that it is it is theoretically possible to read this book and not think of it as a racist tract. It's not the most it is central to the plot in some ways, but like you don't necessarily have to to, to think about it. Map directly. it onto race. Right. You could whatever. Yeah. yeah. But here's the part I can't answer, and this is the thing that I still can't quite get done, which is Dyer in the book, as I first read as he's first describing the elder ones, I'm repulsed by that description as well. It's not a pretty description of the elder ones. And and so like They're like barrel-shaped octopi with star heads. I kept thinking caterpillars. That's what I was it was like I, it, it wasn't Ooh. Yeah, exactly. It, I, I did not have a good image of that. But by the yeah. end of the book, Dyer is an apologist for the old ones. He really is an apologist for them. He says, "Look, they didn't know what was happening. You know, I don't blame them for killing Lake. I can only imagine they were disoriented <laughs> for what they were doing. I feel really It's kind of a weird passage. It, it's a very strange <laughs> moment where he's an apologist for the old ones who massacred his colleagues and their dogs. And their dogs. Don't forget the dogs. <laughs> but the Shogoths, I'm supposed to believe are somehow beyond the pale. That was the part that I cannot get past. And that is the part that I think in the end is the fatal flaw in this book, which is, it, it just doesn't work in that sense. And the Shogoths yeah, are also see, described as completely disgusting, which is fine, I get that, but like... Oh, he makes clear that they're more disgusting. Yes, yes. And that they smell worse. Right, but like... And that thing that he does that actually got me... Are we just going to call the, the... Whenever we have a little quibble, we can call it a linguist problem. Yes, fair enough, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is actually literally a linguist problem yeah. in a way, which is that when he says that the Shogoths mimic speech... Right. If you're mimicking speech, you're speaking. Yeah. Especially since he makes clear they are communicating. Right. It's not like they're just literally like parroting. Right. And I assume they're using the language, right. and, which means they're speaking the language. And there's also this like there's that moment where Dyer talks about the last set of wall carvings, which I assume were supposed to be done by the oh, Shogun. Oh, they were so decadent. Right, but they were done by the Shoguns. <laughs> and it, like somehow like he's trying to make it clear that we should be repulsed by these as opposed to be awed by the previous ones. And this is actually where, again, I think Lovecraft's telling, not showing works against him because it doesn't, mm-hmm. it just didn't work for me in that sense. So like- How can you just say like, those carvings were better than the other right, carvings? You know, I mean, it, yeah. And also the other thing is this is also where his reliance on inhuman and yeah. beyond human comprehension and stuff also fails him. Right. Because if you describe one set of carvings as beyond human comprehension, and then you get another set of carvings that are also- But those also are really beyond. <laughs> Yeah. You're not going to understand either of them. Yes. Like, <laughs> it's not. Yeah. And how would you tell one is better than the other? Right. So, you know, this, I guess the point is, in the end, this was fatally. Yeah, it's a fatal, it's a fatal flaw. flaw. And there are other flaws, which we are going to get to, that add on to that, that make it more problematic for me. Yeah. But, you know, Dan, we also have to treat this book like we treat every other book mm-hmm. and, you know, get to the real purpose of the podcast. There we go. Which is Dan. Anna. Is there IR in this book? There is a small amount of IR in this book. There is not a lot of IR in this book, but there is a small amount of IR in this book because really what this book is about is the rise and fall of civilizations, in particular the the civilization of the Elder Ones. 
And that is a theme, the sort of rise and fall of great powers is literally the title of a great Paul Kennedy book. But more generally, there is a lot of, of research in international relations about what causes the decline of great powers. Um, there is a great, really fascinating classic text by uh, an Arab author named Ibn Khaldun called the Makidama, which is something that I teach on a regular basis that is all about the life cycle of civilizations. I will say that an awful lot of sci-fi seems predicated on this on sort of, you talk about Lovecraft relying on Spengler. I think Spengler to some extent also relies on Edward Gibbon's sort of decline and fall of yeah. the Roman Empire. Yeah. And this is a, a general theory of the decline of the Roman Empire as due to internal decay and decadence, which is the idea that if there is any civilization that stays great for a long period of time, eventually stasis kicks in, decadence kicks in, and they decline. And I will say that Lovecraft is actually a little bit interesting here because there's weirdly more science to his story, I think, than most versions of this. Because he talks about the Ice Age coming and sort of taking the older ones by surprise, if I read this correctly, as well as sort of continental drift. And that actually echoes more recent scholarship about the decline of Rome. I would particularly recommend a great book by Ryan Harper called The Fate of Rome that basically argues that the Roman Empire does not fall due to internal decay and decadence. It falls due to, among other things, climate shifts and pandemics. So, you know, might be relatable to a little bit of today. I want to say something about the decadence piece, yeah. which, I mean, how do you tell decadence from conspicuous consumption? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I'm actually kind of serious. Like, any capitalist society right. is going to create wealth in, you know, unequal amounts. Yeah. And, and that wealth gap is going to create conspicuous consumption on a scale that can look pretty fucking decadent. You know, like, let's say, like, you're somebody that's a reality TV show star and you like everything gold-plated. <laughs> Seems pretty decadent. So from an IR perspective, I'm actually pretty, I'm actually curious about, like, as a sophisticated reader, I, I guess I've always thought I kind of understand decadence in an IR context. So I think the way that you... but. So the way that decadence would be described in terms of international relations, interestingly enough, and this is really interesting given what we're living through today, is essentially the evaporation of thrift and the explosion of debt. In other words, it, the question becomes, are people living beyond their means? I think that is the way that IR scholars think about decadence. There's a fantastic book, one of my favorite books in, in the canon in IR, uh, by Robert Gilpin called War and Change in World Politics. And one of the arguments that Gilpin makes is that hegemons eventually decline because population gets used to luxuries and by doing so are not willing to make the necessary sacrifices to contribute to the public good in the form of investments in security and other public Who's goods. Who's the public here? The public, in the case of guilt. Because, because yeah. I'm thinking about this unequal wealth distribution, right. and there are some people on this planet right now, in this country, yeah. that are in debt because they have catastrophic health problems. Right. Let me put it this way. You know, public goods. This sounds a little bit like an IR version of the trope of welfare queen. <laughs> like, I would not. No, no, no. I would say that the way that, that IR people, IR folks think about this is not the idea of going into debt because of health crises. It's going into debt for conspicuous consumption. Right. But that's the rich people. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, the Americans, I think. You can't make that argument that they're going in debt because of conspicuous consumption. No, I don't think so. Again, at this particular moment, you especially can't. No, make no, no. That. I'm not saying that that applies to now, but I am saying that that is the sort of general uh, IR trip. And this okay. is also, I'm in this is also, by the way, consistent with Ibn Khaldun, who basically argues that what happens over time, he, he sort of describes four generations through which a civilization will rise and fall. And ba basically, the argument that he makes is that in order for a civilization to rise, there has to be some sort of origins and Spartan living, as it were, and that once you get accustomed to luxuries, you eventually get soft. I'm not saying it's All accurate. This sounds like bullshit to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just telling you this is what, what they say. Okay, okay, okay. You're not making the argument for it. It just, it, it sounds, it sounds like old white guy thinking. But this will be know. an interesting debate to have in the future. Let me put it this way. Anna, I will say this. I think you can redefine public goods to include things like health care, Okay. And make and make it in a way that is entirely consistent with Gilpin and Ibn Khaldun's arguments. So I don't. I want to push okay. back on the idea that this is just old white guy thinking. The other aspect right. of this that I I did find interesting is again, and what I would just describe as Antarctica's odd status in international relations. Antarctica is unique on the Earth because it is a landmass that has never been successfully colonized. 
Um, and it is the only landmass, to my knowledge, that has never been successfully colonized. Because of that, states have done really weird things to try to bolster territorial claims in the absence of permanent settlements. Among other things, my personal favorite is that I believe Argentina flew a pregnant woman from Argentina... <laughs> <laughs> to their declared territory in Antarctica to claim that they had the first person born in Antarctica. But there are other things in terms of like map making and sort of drop, literally dropping flags from planes into territory as a way of sort of doing the the planting of flags yes. and if you think that this all sounds really weird it's in some ways a lot of the same stuff that's now being done by china with respect to the nine dash line in terms of the south china sea the other thing i will say is that antarctica is a rare place where you actually saw cold war cooperation there was a treaty of antarctica signed in 1958 that allowed for scientific research anywhere on the continent and basically sort of ignored the territorial land claims and if you're interested in any more of this I highly recommend a book by David Day uh, called Antarctica, a biography. It's a political history of Antarctica. It's legit really interesting. But let's get to another important element of this podcast. Anna. Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this book? Dan. <laughs> I regret to inform you that there is. <laughs> some of it is intentional and some of it isn't. I think there is this weird offhand reference to the classical stage of elder one's culture being socialist, right. which he never kind of like. That's it. It's literally a sense a sentence of what in, that would mean. Yeah, yeah, no, it just says it's socialist. Just take my word for it. Keep going. Yes. And I do think in some ways, the as much as I push back on the sort of theory of decline and fall of civilizations, there to me is a critique of capitalism and embedded in that because it is capitalism that creates the conditions for that kind of decadence you know okay. but what is really a strong argument uh, you know about capitalism here is a slave revolt mm. and that's for sure not the one that he intended to make <laughs> where labor you know rises up and you know takes to sex the bourgeoisie apparently <laughs> yeah and takes possession of the things that they had built Right. Mm -hmm. And also it's it's weird because it, he actually it's not just that the Shogoths are the laborers. They're also apparently like the actual capital. Like they they're both you know, makes. Th yeah, it's an interesting point. No, like they literally make the Shogoths and then the Shogoths apparently can morph into stuff. make other stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And transform into things right. and whatnot. Yeah. And I, like I said, I am quite sure that is not the argument that Lovecraft intended to make. <laughs> And it is, if you have not read this book, dear listener, and as much as we, you know, as the many, many problems that it has, it is worth reading for, I guess we're getting into canon or fodder here. Yeah. It is worth reading, if only for, if you, dear listener, in the same general political mindset as we are, this astonishing twist that he doesn't intend where you have sympathy for the Shogoths. <laughs> Like, it's a twist that is actually, you could count it as another great twist in science fiction literature that you definitely don't expect, mm -hmm. right? And it comes on contemplation, of course. It doesn't really, like, while you're reading it, you might not feel that way. But, I, yeah, so we're, we're getting, we're, we sort of skipped ahead here in, in me pronouncing that people should read it. Before we maybe get into that a little further, right. we need to talk about some themes. Yeah. It is short on themes beyond <laughs> racism. <laughs> Degenerate, decadent, bad. Science. Science, good. And always bring paper with you <laughs> so that you can lay a trail, which you insist in your later writing is somehow not disturbed by wind over and over and over. <laughs> Not over and over and over. But do you notice yeah. that a few times he's like, well, we used paper to trace our path and we made sure that no bush and it would get blown away. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> Whatever. And I, then in case you were wondering if they ran out of paper, if you were wondering if they, if this is a weird verisimilitude yeah. thing he does, right? Because at one point, if you were wondering, oh, they way have, that's way too much paper. They would never be able to have that much paper to get to, to wander around the city. They've surely run out of paper by now. They stumble upon a cache of paper. 
<laughs> and refill their supply of paper. Let me put it this way. I actually feel like my understanding is Lovecraft originally submitted this to Weird Tales and they said no. They didn't want to publish it. And like I kind of wish he had a good editor because I bet a good editor mm. would have made this even better. Um, in that sense yeah. but basically what you said with respect to the themes i have no i have no additional themes it's yeah degenerate bad science good and gps is valuable it would be the takeaway that i would have. <laughs> also grad students have always been abused <laughs> that's true I have to, yes like grad students do all the work <laughs> professors take all the credit yes the- who flew that plane Right. And like who saw the awful monster? The evil. Yes, the unspeakable evil. And like when when we learn that Danforth is in essentially an asylum because he's gone nuts, my first reaction was, yeah, do we think he's gone nuts because he saw something in Antarctica or because he was a grad student? You know, there's a lot of reasons why grad students lose it. Grad school, it can be very difficult for a lot of people. You know what, Dan? That's why there should be unions for grad students. <laughs> That's why grad students should unionize. I like how we've managed to go from Lovecraft to grad students unionizing. That's a that's a good way. Okay, so Anna, we are now at the section of loved it and hated it for Cannon Fodder. Uh, Anna, do you want to start? I will. Um, I've said most of the things I like about it. I am a sucker for his purple prose. Like as funny as it can be, I think it works. And again, like you and I were wondering kind of like, how is it that he does all this telling and not showing Mm -hmm. and it still works? But I also will confess, this is something that little baby writer Anna tried to do probably very unsuccessfully. Just build the the words, you know, until you have this torrent of like dread. Mm -hmm. But I was going to read, I was going to read a section here. What did it? Oh, here it is. If the plain signs of surviving elder horrors in which I disclose be not enough to keep others from meddling with the inner Antarctic, or at least from prying too deeply beneath the surface of that ultimate waste of forbidden secrets and unhuman aeon-cursed desolation, the responsibility for unnameable and perhaps immeasurable evils will not be mine. There's just something about the way that he like kind of piles up the words mm-hmm. there that that's not the best sentence, but it was the first one. But it's a purple <laughs> I stumbled one. Stumbled upon. It's a purple one. It is a purple yeah. one, and also, as a young person, not seeing the racism, the twist was kind of cool to me. Fair you enough. You know, like oh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> wow! Like the things they created wound up rising up against them. <laughs> I, you know, I was had not yet um, become awoken. There we go. So I didn't really see it i hated sort of the telling and not showing although as i said before for some reason i found it endearing (laughs) in in this read probably because it i do think it is in the character of dyer and in the telling there is just a lot of descriptions of their gear and like how much gear they have and what gear they leave behind and like it's you always know how many dogs they have there's like a (laughs) exact number of dogs right. that they have with them or don't have with mm-hmm. them and then the logical consistency of their reading the alien hieroglyphics but again that's sort of like the one thing you have to like kind of just be like okay yeah. if you have a problem with that then you're going to arrival it yeah. <laughs> like me dan loved it hated it so what i loved uh, as i said this before was the sci and the sci-fi I, I legit wasn't expecting this and maybe it was because i wasn't expecting it that i found it more appealing but also i have to admit i think i liked lovecraft's theme of the idea that scientific curiosity can be the hedge against horror as it were and in some ways it, this also was something i hated again this is the showing not telling or it's the telling not showing part in that I kind of wish he had had Dyer explain why he was so curious. It sort of seems like, you know, like if he can be purple in terms of describing the horror, you could also, I think, be a little ripe in terms of describing why scientifically this would be such an amazing thing to discover. And I think in that sense, it's sort of intuitive that the reader would automatically get it. Like you, I did like the the sort of dread that's set up. And in that sense, this is where the best part of the telling, not showing thing comes through, because by telling it, it's constructed in such a way to, to make you clear, oh, you think you bad stuff has happened? No, 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 we're going to get to the bad stuff. Just you wait, just you wait. It almost has a monster at the end of the book kind of quality to it in that sense. And that actually works, and that's fine. And also, I did like the grandeur, the idea of a, a vast lost city in Antarctica. I, that, it was an appealing idea to me, and like I genuinely like that. 
in terms of what I hated, so <laughs> yeah, okay, the racism, no, not a fan of that. Let's just be clear. I was also, frankly, not a fan of what I would describe as the Lovecraft cinematic universe. <laughs> he does self-reference a ton. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's like, am I supposed to know what the Necronomicon is? Or am I supposed to know, like, you know, and so there is a part of me that, like, if you read this, it's kind of like watching Avengers Endgame without having seen the previous 19 or 20 or 21 movies. So that in that sense, it's a touch-off putting, but not too much. But the idea that like all these scientists are going to be like, oh my God, this is just like these primal myths we've talked about. It's That was the part where like it doesn't quite work for me. Um, we have talked about the telling and not showing, dear God. But also, frankly, the lack of characters. Like Dyer, you find a little bit. Dyer and Dan, Dan, you get a little bit of Danforth. You get a little bit of Danforth, but not much. And, you know, that's it. And, you know, so like in in that sense, it's a three to body problem issue in that that there's not a ton of characters in this. But that said, there was more that I liked. Now that I'm sort of going over it, I confess there's more I liked than I think I'd realized originally. And that brings us to this explicit question of canon or fodder. And we both, I think, are it's clear to people where we lean. Part of me wishes I could say, just toss this away. Mm-hmm. So usually like when I think about canon versus fodder, like sort of like like with Orson Scott Card, like the reason I was tempted to put it more in the fodder category, and I think I actually sort of by a hair did, is that is there something else that is not problematic that can give you the same kind of literary experience or literary significance, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing about Lovecraft is there is nothing like him. Hmm. His style of writing and the way that he wrote about science and the way that he wrote about horror is pretty much completely unique in the American canon. Like, he invented horror for the most part. I mean, obviously there's horror, but that dread, like, I just feel like there's no one else that, that kind of gets at it. Well, and the other thing that, I mean, there are other people that yeah. get at it, but like, he just is the, he's the primogenitor of it. And also, no, I hold on, point I'm going to push back on this because there's a, re- I mean, Lovecraft explicitly references Edgar Allan Poe a couple oh. of times in this. And like, Poe is better, frankly, at this point than Lovecraft. And so that, that, this is where... I might fall a little more into the fodder point than you are, because my point is, is because of the existence of Edgar Allan Poe, I'm not sure you need Lovecraft as much, I guess would be the way to put it. Mm. See, I think, yeah, I disagree, because I think that he, you know, it's not that he does body horror, Mm. but as much as we're making fun of the nameless, unhuman, formless stuff that he relies on, again, I read Poe as I was a little weird kid, too, and I didn't find it as resonant or as influential to me Hmm. because Poe's kind of horror is sort of within the folkloric tradition of horror. Like, his plots are really good, but, like, the person behind the wall, the heart that won't stop eating, you know, like, the ghosts and goblins kind of stuff. Right, there's actually no sci in Poe. There's no science in Poe. That's a fair point. And to that extent, that's the the contribution that Lovecraft makes. Yeah, I think that, that Lovecraft contributed something that I know Stephen King explicitly has talked about this, which is the idea of the unhuman being frightening, mm-hmm. being the terror. Yeah. The idea that some there is thing, there are things that we cannot even imagine, and that that in and of itself mm-hmm. is fearful. That's a fair point. To not be able to comprehend something. Yes. And that's also where the science comes from, yeah. because and that's what's why the science part is important here, because... In fact, so he wrote a very famous essay that I have read but did not reread for this podcast called The Supernatural Horror in Literature. And the very first sentence is somewhat cited all the time. Uh, Oh, here we go. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. Mm. And I think traditional horror, the unknown is just... It's a known unknown. Yeah. <laughs> to quote Rumsfeld, yeah. it's Dracula, it's it's a werewolf, it's a witch, it's a wizard, whatever. Dead. Yeah. Um yeah, it, it and he conjures the idea that there could be a big bad that is so bad mm-hmm. it has never existed before. Yeah. Right? And this is where the science part of it and actually sort of echoes of three body problem come in, which is that to a scientist especially, to a rationalist. Mm-hmm. The idea that there are things that you cannot understand is mind-blowing. That's fair. I have to... So this is where... Like, leave it this way. 
much as I think I was more enthusiastic about Orson Scott Card's Ender Game than you were, I think it is safe to say you are a little bit more enthusiastic about Lovecraft than I am. But you're persuading me that we can't get toss we can't it. toss it. And this is just it's unfair to Orson Scott Card, who wrote sixty years later. But the other thing that that makes it hard to dismiss Lovecraft is just the obvious intellectual legacy he has in terms of the number of authors who have clearly been influenced by his work thankfully in a non-racist way i think it would be safe to say so like you know so in that sense it, i guess maybe that offers that lovecraft's sense of horror which is real and tangible in ways that were enough so like i didn't finish this book late at night because i didn't want to finish this book late at night let's put it that way so there is still a power to this but i'm on the knife edge in terms of Canon and fodder, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I just think, yeah, to me, this is, in some ways, it's the beginning of a new genre in science fiction. Yeah, that's not a bad way. And let's face it, unfortunately, in in our history, the origins of a lot of genres often have a lot of racism in them. And this is a tough thing to deal with. Also a lot of sexism and yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we're going to say that, like, canons more generally have those origins and you can still read them to get the good stuff while still acknowledging them, then I guess... In theory, that allows us to read Lovecraft as well, even though, again, the racism is kind of central to this. Although, again, like my argument for reading it despite the racism is to experience that weird shift of like, oh, wow, you know, he's being racist towards the show. Yes, but let me put it this way. I think you are a very capacious of spirit to assume that's what everyone is going to take away from reading this. Oh, That's really funny. <laughs> yeah, well, you're right. And because that's not, that's why he wrote yeah. it. He wrote it to rationalize and justify. Right. But that said, so, you're right. Hopefully it, it can be interpreted in multiple ways at this point. The people who are listening to this podcast, I have yes. faith that they will have their minds blown by the twist. That unintended twist. Fair enough. All right. Now we're entering the debris field, just cleaning up <laughs> anything that we haven't said already. Dan. Uh, so, you know, again, I kept writing in the book too many adjectives, um, <laughs> which, Purple. which is, again, the sort of telling, not showing part. And I'm sorry to, like, keep beating this with a dead horse, but, like, I wanted more. No, if you, if you haven't read this, you need to know going yeah, in. Yeah. Like- and there are ways in which, by the way, I, there was a point where it was like, my God, this reads like a campfire story. It really does. Like, it reads yeah. like a story you would tell someone to try to freak them out over a campfire. And it's a really good campfire story in that sense. So that's, that's fair. Also, shout out to the Red Line in Boston. Uh, there's a moment at the end where, um, I think, to sort of restore their sanity, I think. Danforth, Danforth yeah. just starts starts listing tea stop stations, uh, you know, which, <laughs> and I, you know, as someone who lives in the Boston area, I found that very charming. And I just want to say, Danforth, if, if your spirit is out there, they've gone to Davis Square. They've even gone past to Alewife. So, you know, it's a great thing. But the last small point I have to mo- point is that I, I did laugh. I, and I don't think Lovecraft meant for me to laugh at this point. When, whenever Lovecraft keeps talking about the stench or the, the foul smells, and then they run into the six foot tall albino penguins, Now, as someone who has been to Antarctica and has been interacted with penguins, yeah, there's a reason why there's a foul stench. It's because penguins shit everywhere. Penguins poop all over the place. They are not like dogs in that sense. They poop where they eat. And penguin shit smells horrible. This is what you never realize when you're seeing all these National Geographic specials of the Antarctica and the penguins and the penguins look adorable and so on and so forth. And they are totally adorable, but they smell bad. And so this was, again, like you want to talk about verisimilitude? I was like, I was like, oh, no, that six foot tall albino penguin is going to shit all over Dyer. He's going to be covered. in. (laughs) So, sorry. The six foot tall albino penguins are like an interesting digression. They were legitimate. They 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 were scary to me. It it just... They're a little bit scary and a little bit amusing. Yeah. Oh, and speaking, I guess I'll put this in my de- my debris field, which is that in the Lovecraft cinematic universe mm-hmm. that he has for feels compelled to put yeah. in there are the two wars of the Elder right. Ones against the Cthulhu and the Migos, right. which it's like, why would you, you don't need that. Yes, it's completely extraneous. It's completely extraneous and it's only to cite his own work. <laughs> Or for fanboys, I guess. Although what's funny to think about is, of course, Lovecraft had almost no success in his own time. 
And so while you might think of, of those two references as a kind of fan service for those Lovecraft heads out there, there were no Lovecraft heads out there when he was right. I hate to say so, so what he was just doing it to please himself. The, although you know what? I will say this this shows once again that Lovecraft at least understands academics because what he's doing is self citation. <laughs> it's self citation. <laughs> Yes, I think that that I do think he understood academics. Yes, exactly. So I'm going to do my debris mm-hmm. again. It is embarrassing, but I guess I, I'm t- I'm telling all here. In literally, this book was so influential for me. My attempts to do horror have, at first, probably looked a little too much like this. You know, like when I was a kid, I started trying to write horror, like when I was that age. The so very you first story that, I, I ever wrote. I'm curious about it. This is actually legitimate. So, so when you started writing fiction, this was your, the first sort of template you had in some ways. That's yeah. fascinating. Okay. And it's, no, but yeah. like. And Poe, actually in Poe. Oh, fair enough. Okay, the, yeah. I was going to say the, the very first story I ever wrote mm-hmm. was called The Midnight Honker. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. And it was a story about a young man who goes on a date and dies on the way to pick her up. But then every once in a while on the full moon, you hear <laughs> the, the wail of the car horn. Wow. Coming to pick her up. Okay. I, you, none of you can <laughs> see this right now. If you're listening to the podcast, you might not understand, but my eyes are as big as saucers listening to Anna tell me this. So, like, this is, this. you know, you clearly had some talent. But I will point out, it's interesting, because for me, the first sort of template I had was Raymond Carver, who was about as opposite an author as you can yeah. get to Lovecraft in so many ways. So maybe that's part of my reaction. Oh, I tried to imitate Raymond Carver yeah. later. Uh, fair like, enough. That okay. was, you yeah. know, I've gone through that. I've gone through Hemingway, yeah. Kerouac, like, all the... Yeah, all the dead white guys, basically. Oh, and then sort of wound up with Joan Didion as being kind of the last person I was really kind of consciously trying to imitate. So I I can't end the podcast without reading Lovecraft's description of the people that love what was called weird fiction at the time. (laughs) People like us, Dan, people like those listening to this podcast. This is from the Supernatural uh, Horror in Literature essay. The appeal of the spectrally macabre is generally narrow because it demands from the reader a certain degree of imagination and a capacity for detachment from everyday life. Relatively few are free enough from the spell of the daily routine to respond to wrappings from the outside, and tales of ordinary feelings and events or of common sentimental distortions of such feelings and events will always take first place in the taste of the majority. Rightly, perhaps, since of course these ordinary matters make up the greater part of human experience but the sensitive are always with us. And sometimes a curious streak of fancy invades an obscure corner of the very hardest head so that no amount of rationalization, reform, or Freudian analysis can quite annul the thrill of the chimney corner whisper in the lonely wood. That's almost Orson Scott Card-like in terms of the (laughs) self-serving, like, (laughs) we special people, we we are special those who enjoy this kind of fiction. Yeah. But it's also actually him, when he was restrained, he's actually a quite beautiful writer. Right. And in some ways, again, like that passage, again, makes me wish that he could have put some similar kind of passion like that into Dyer's words in terms of describing the scientific curiosity. So, again, it's the frustrating thing of he could have done that, but he didn't. But I grant you. Because he felt it. Yes, exactly. And and I don't think he's wrong here, by the way. (laughs) Like, I do think that Genre can be very popular, mm-hmm. but there is, I've had discussions on and off about this, I think all my adult life, about what happens like when, you know, the, the obscure things you love get popular. Ah, interesting. There is always going to be Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's always going to be like, you know, horror movies that make a kajillion yeah. dollars. But I do think that it is a special subset mm-hmm. of humanity that seeks out the weird you know, that that's our preference to get exposed to in our free time. That's a lovely sentiment. So, why, thank you. And speaking of lovely sentiments, you know what, Dan? People can give us money. They can? <laughs> Who knew? They can. They can. Apparently, if you go to patreon.com slash space the nation, and if you are not a patron, you can choose to be a patron and give us a very small sum of money. You can give us more. We're not judging, you know, but we would obviously like to have you do so. And if you do 
give us money, you will be part of uh, a larger uh, community in which you have access to a Discord channel in which you can talk about potential things we will be talking about in the future. And you will also have access to our patron-only podcast, which we will be recording at some point in the near future. I was just going to say, we might create another patron-only podcast. Like we're, Right now, we're just doing right. one for the first 100-plus yes. people. When we get to 200, maybe, we'll do another That's one. We'll, we'll, we'll pick some landmarks. Yes. And I was just going to toss in that, that giving us money is not decadent. Right. <laughs> Right. Let me put it this way. There is no such thing as decadence at $3 a month. That would be the way to put it. Uh, (laughs) There are higher levels. Still not decadent. Even the highest level is not that decadent. We also have an uh, upcoming AMA, I believe, the first weekend in May. May May 1st. May Day. Oh, Anna. At 10, I know. (laughs) I'll be wearing my red shirt at 1030 Central, 1130. Eastern. Eastern. That sounds correct. Yes. Yes. All right. Oh, and upcoming topics, Dan. We've, we've got, got uh, Battlestar Galactica version one, so the pilot for the uh, the original show that appeared in the 1970s. We are also going to do Falcon and Winter Soldier. We're going to be doing Starship Troopers, and I believe we're also going to be doing uh, Altered Carbon, the novel, not the film. And just so we don't uh, sort of clog up the message boards with things that we already have on our sort of future uh, On our to-do radar. list, as it were. On our to-do list, so you don't need to suggest Dune, all right? <laughs> like, we've, we've got, got plans for Dune. We're, Trust us. We're going to do Dune. Is, Dune is going to happen, okay? <laughs> we recognize this. It's going to happen. We promise. I think that's the only one that's really, like, I feel like, come on. All right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. We're yes. on it. I do think that we should look into doing more horror. I really do. I guess we can, so. we can consider that. Just... Tossing that out, Mr. Zombie. Fair enough. But while we're figuring our shit out, Dan, what can people do? Keep this channel open for more.